Uh, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, we're looking at John chapter 12, verses 12 to 25. John chapter 12, verses 12 to... Actually, it's verses 12 to 26. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can uh, gather around your word uh, this morning, uh, and we pray that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit, through your word, uh, and help us to see and to love and to follow Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. It is now a week before Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, and it's Passover time. Pilgrims from all around the country, and indeed all around the region, are flocking to Jerusalem. Some time back, at a place called Bethany, a nearby village, Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead in front of many witnesses. Many people had believed in him, and the Jewish leaders were worried. The high priest Caiaphas prophetically said to them, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now he had meant it in a utilitarian way. Better we kill Jesus and then, then let him cause trouble and the whole country get into problems. Right? But John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us that he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Yesterday, Jesus was at Bethany again. Large crowds had come to see him there because of Lazarus, but today Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. There had been all kinds of speculation earlier about whether or not he had come, but now, in verse 12 of John 12, a large crowd has, that has come to the feast hears that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and they're all excited. And so in verse 13, they take, a, a, they take branches of palm trees and they go out to meet him. Uh, they're going to acknowledge that he is the king of Israel. But the palm branches hint what kind of king they, they think he is. You see, palm branches were at the time a nationalist symbol. About 170 years before this, uh, when Simon the Maccabee had driven out Syrian forces from Jerusalem, the Jews celebrated with music and waving palm branches. So maybe the crowd thinks that Jesus might do the same and liberate Jerusalem from the Romans. Why do they cry out when they see him? Verse 13, Hosanna, which originally meant, save us now. Though it was used by then, uh, but by then it was used, it may have just been, we praise you, we acclaim you. Uh, they announce the messianic blessing on Jesus. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, what they're singing is, in fact, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is about the stones that the builders rejected, which becomes the cornerstone. Jesus was rejected by the Jewish leadership, yet he's about to become the most important figure in God's kingdom. Right, Psalm 18 uh, continues, it says, Save us, we pray. That's Hosanna. O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You see what they're doing? They are saying Jesus is the Messiah. The Psalm 18 Messiah. And this Messiah had raised Lazarus from the dead. And he would raise and restore Israel. So what does Jesus do? Well, in verse 14, Jesus finds a young donkey 
and sits on it. Right, back in 1 Kings uh, 133, uh, Solomon had ridden on David's mule to be anointed king. So you see the expectation? The people are saying, you're the king. And Jesus is implying, yes, I am. But not the kind of king you are thinking about. And we realize this when we look at the prophecy of Zechariah that John alludes to in verse 15, uh, where it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament passage that John is reminding us about, right, it's a prophecy about what would happen when the Messiah arrives at Jerusalem. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey, and then it continues, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Notice something very interesting here. This Messiah comes to Jerusalem in a humble way on a donkey. He comes to his people Israel. He will speak peace to the nations. He will rule the world from sea to sea. And yet, he won't achieve this by chariots and war horses. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as this prophesied king on the first Palm Sunday. And John tells us about three groups of people who are there who see him. The disciples, the crowd, and the Pharisees. The disciples we know love and follow Jesus, right? They're, they're fully involved, they're fully caught up in all this, but they don't, they don't really appreciate what's going on yet. Verse 16 now it says they don't understand these things at first. It's only later when Jesus is glorified, they remember these things, and then they remember that these things were written about him uh, and, and these things that had been written about him and done to him. Now, friends, I wonder if any of us are like the disciples. Right? Uh, we know the Bible stories, including this one. We don't really understand what's going on and why, because we don't know how they connect with the Old Testament. And more importantly, we don't know how they connect with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus' death and resurrection, that's where everything's going. In fact, that's where the, the whole Bible story up to this point is going. Right? The events of Palm Sunday, the prophecies of the Old Testament, they actually only make sense in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't get that, it's very hard to make sense of everything else. After Jesus is glorified, the disciples will remember what's written in the Old Testament. They'll understand how that and this event is linked with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then they'll get it. They will see that Jesus is the king from the Old Testament, that the king is going to save Israel and rule the world, but they will also realize that he's going to be glorified, not by commanding chariots and war horses, but by dying for the sins of his people and rising again. And the death and resurrection of Jesus is what makes the rest of the Bible story make sense. And we make sense of the Bible story too by understanding the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, the second group of people here are the crowds. Uh, contrary to public opinion, popular opinion, uh, these are not the same people who later demand his crucifixion. But there are two groups of people in the crowds. Uh, there are those people in verse 17 uh, who have been with Jesus 
and who were with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. Right? Uh, that's, that's not something you easily forget. Right? These are all the people who were there uh, at that time, and they continued to bear witness about it. And so when Jesus comes back to Jerusalem, or Jesus comes to Jerusalem, they claim him as the king of Israel and call on him to save them. There are other people in the crowd, in verse 18, who are those who go to meet Jesus because they have heard that he had done that sign. Right? They weren't with Jesus themselves when Jesus raised Lazarus, but they heard about it from the people who were. They received their witness. And they also waved the palm branches and acclaimed him as king and cried out for his salvation. Now, this palm-waving crowd, consisting of two groups of people, point forward to another crowd. In the book of Revelation, one of the pictures that we are given of the end is that of a great multitude that no one can number, from every tribe and language and people and nation. We see that in Revelation 7. And in Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10, we see this, this great multitude from all these nations, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And brothers and sisters, if we belong to Jesus, if we believe in him, then we are part of that crowd. Like the crowd on the first Palm Sunday, the crowd on that last day will have two kinds of people. Those who saw the signs that Jesus did, like the raising of Lazarus, all the other signs in John's Gospel, who are witnesses of the resurrection, in fact. And then there are those who heard about it from them, who received their witness. John, who wrote this book, is one of the people who saw. You and I, who read it, are one of the people who received his witness. In fact, he wrote this book so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. That's what he tells us. Some people saw the signs. Some people received the witness of those who did. But either way, they were there in the crowd. And either way, those who believe will one day be in that multitude to acclaim Jesus as King and proclaim his salvation. The third group of people here are the Pharisees. These are the Jewish religious leaders, men known for their piety and morality and fastidious keeping of the law and tradition. But look what they say to each other about Jesus in verse 19. They say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. You know, what does that show about their hearts? They know about Lazarus. They can see Jesus fulfilling prophecy before their eyes. They should be acclaiming Jesus with the crowds, but they're not. Because they view him not as the, the king sent by God, but as a political rival. Uh, this is about the salvation of the world, the fulfillment of God's promises, the end of the age. But they've made it about them and their petty politics. And they take the Son of God, who became man to save the human race, has their competition. It would be laughable if it were not so serious. Now, friends, you and I have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus. You and I have the message that he died for us and rose again. You and I are to take this message to the world so that men, women, and children from all over the world might be saved. God forbid that we should let petty rivalries and exaggerated sense of self-importance or our own inflated egos get in the way. 
Let us put all that down at Jesus' feet and humbly and sincerely serve him. Which brings us to the last section of our passage. When the Pharisees saw the Jewish crowd acclaiming Jesus, they, they said somewhat hyperbolically that the world had gone after him. But they spoke better than they knew because just after this, John draws our attention to some other people who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. These people were, in verse 20, Greeks. Now, presumably they've seen what's happened and they go to Philip. Well, Philip's got a Greek name and he's from Bethsaida in Galilee, which is a Greeky kind of area, so it makes sense they would approach him. And they say to him politely, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, sometimes when outsiders are interested in Jesus, they, they will look for Christians who they can identify with in some way and talk to them. And what a great privilege, isn't it, to be able to help someone meet Jesus. You know, there will be people out there for whom you're just the right person to introduce Jesus to them. Well, Philip tells Andrew, who's also from Bethsaida, and together they go and tell Jesus. But John doesn't tell us whether Jesus meets the Greeks or not. Well, we're curious to know, but... It's not important for the point that John's making. What he wants us to know is what Jesus says in response. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, the Greeks are Gentiles, right? non-Jews. And so what we see here is the Gentiles are already starting to come. Right? The nations are knocking at the door. But Jesus knows that if he's going to be the king of the Jews and the Gentiles, he will need to be glorified. That is, he will need to die and be raised. A little bit later on, he will say, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. He will have to die for both Jews and Greeks to reconcile them to the Father and then so to reconcile them to each other to make the one new people of God. He's going to have to go to the cross if he's going to have that multitude that no one can number from every tribe and language and people and nation gathered around the throne. In the words of John that we have seen before, he would die not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus is going to rule the nations, not by chariots and war horses, but by his sacrificial death and resurrection. So he's going to have to die. And so he continues in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's going to be Jesus. He's going to be like that one seed sown in the ground that then produces much fruit. He will die and be buried, but the result will be a great harvest of Jew and Gentile. Jesus continues in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus was willing to give up his life. He was willing to die for our sins in our place, bearing the just judgment of God so that we can be saved. He was willing to be buried, but he would be raised as the king of Israel and the king of the whole world. He was willing to give up his life to keep it for eternal life. But that's not just Jesus. Notice he says here, whoever loves his life, loses it. And he clarifies this in verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Yes, Jesus went to the cross as our representative. He died on our behalf. Yes, Jesus went to the cross as our substitute. He took our place. 
Yes, Jesus went to the cross to, to be glorified and in doing so draw all people to himself. That's the objective work of what he did for us. But in doing that, he also set us an example. And if we are to serve him, we must follow him. He was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, and we must be willing to do so as well. He was willing to be unjustly treated, and we must be willing to do so as well. He was willing to give up his life to be the seed that dies so the harvest can follow, so that people from all nations will be in the great multitude in that last day, and we must be willing to do so as well. That is part and parcel of serving Jesus. And notice how Jesus says, those who hate their lives in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's not talking here about being in despair. He's saying, if we sacrifice our life for the sake of the gospel, eternal life is ours. As Jesus was raised, so will we be. As Jesus was glorified, so will we be. For Jesus continues, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. As it was all worthwhile for Jesus in the end, so shall it be for those who serve him. And so, brothers and sisters, as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, and as we acclaim Jesus as the King who went to Jerusalem to give up his life for us, here's what God is asking us. Are we willing to follow Jesus? Are we willing to give up everything for him? Are we willing to be like that seed that dies in order to produce much fruit? Now, what that looks like is going to look different for each one of us. Right? Our, our recent apprentices or interns at the cathedral have, have given up careers in dentistry, law, and management psychology so they can tell people about Jesus. Many of our people have less money to spend or invest because they prioritize giving for the gospel. Many of our leaders juggle work and family and ministry at the midst of stress, find ways of lovingly serving God and his people. Now, what it looks like is going to be different for all of us. Don't compare. But if we follow Jesus, if we serve him, there will be opportunity costs involved. Some of us will give up our ambitions. Some of us will give up our place on the career ladder. Some of us will live with less money. Some of us will live with less leisure time. Some of us will give up ungodly relationships or habits. Some of us may have to give up our freedom. Some of us might have to give up our lives. Following Jesus comes at a cost. Jesus makes that clear. So if you're paying the cost, don't look back. It's worth it. Now, it doesn't mean we don't evaluate what we do from time to time under the, the broader banner of following Jesus and adjusting things accordingly. Of course, we need to do that. Circumstances may change. How we serve may change. But don't think, ah, yeah, if only I wasn't following Jesus, I could have that, or I could enjoy this, or I could do the other. No, no, don't look back. Don't even look around. Look forward. may not feel great now. Suffering and sacrifice are not fun. But it's worth it in the end. It's worth it because we will be raised with Jesus. Where I am, Jesus said, there my servant will be also. The Father will honor you as he honored the Son. And you, together with all who came to Christ or grew in Christ through your sacrifice, will be there in that great multitude on the last day. And you shall stand in robes of white with palm branches in your hand, giving thanks to our King who rode in Jeru into Jerusalem to save us.
And you will say, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. You will enjoy the shelter of God's presence, and every tear shall be wiped away. Now to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, be our honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.